Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. When he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of bad things and false things about God. Now hear the word of the Lord. I, John, your brother who shares with you in the hardships, kingdom, and endurance that we have in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and my witness about Jesus. I was in a spirit-inspired trance on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice that sounded like a trumpet. It said, write down on a scroll whatever you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see who was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven oil lamps burning on top of seven gold stands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw someone who looked like the human one. He wore a robe that stretched down to his feet, and he had gold sash around his chest. His head and hair were white as white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine brass that had been purified in a furnace, and his voice sounded like rushing water. He held seven stars in his right hand, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His appearance was like the sun shining with all its power. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, but he put his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, now I'm alive forever and always. I have the keys of death and the grave. So write down what you have seen, both in the scene now before you and the things that are about to unfold after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, here is what they mean. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thanks, Pastor Bonnie. Appreciate you reading that for us. Revelation is one of my favorite books, and I enjoy spending time in it. And this is the very beginning of the book, and so when we're going to talk at all, anywhere, about what it means to be in a persecuted community, Revelation is the book we turn to. It is written to a persecuted community. There is seven churches in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. If you were to go visit them, I was lucky in 2015 to go visit all seven of them 
in person. Uh, some of them are an empty lot next to an ice cream shop, the Church of Philadelphia, and then others of them are still uh, kind of uh, uh, the, the relics and the ruins are beautifully present like in Smyrna. So uh, if you ever get a chance to go see any of those seven churches, it's a remarkable experience. These seven churches were under fierce persecution at the end of the first century, about uh, 80, 90 to 100 by the Roman emperor Domitian. And so John himself found him, himself in the crosshairs of that persecution, and he ended up in exile on a little island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. And Patmos is, in, is off the shore of Turkey, so it's between Greece and Turkey in that body of water. Uh, and so if you've perhaps vacationed in the Greek Isles, anyone, anyone, Bueller, Bueller, if you have, uh, then you've been near where this happens to be. Patmos is a little tiny island, maybe about a two or three hour cruise off the coast of today's Turkey. On that island, in exile, suffering persecution, John has a vision. And the text that Pastor Bonnie read describes what he saw in that vision. So he's from a community of persecuted churches, and he himself is persecuted, sentenced to exile on the island of Patmos as a very, very old man at that point in time. Now, the image that he has is of Jesus standing there. So let's go through the image really quick. It says that in the text there are seven lampstands on the ground. Do you all hear that? Seven lampstands on the ground. And in the midst he saw one looking like the human one, which is son of man. It's actually Jesus standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. It says that he's wearing a gold sash, because in the Old Testament, that, was, that priest wore a gold sash. And he had hair that was white. And uh, his head, whole head was white. Symbolizing his priestly and purity in, in his nature. His eyes of fire. There's light for the candles, right? The seven lampstands and eyes of fire. They were supposed to correspond with each other. It says that he has feet of bronze. Bronze, when it's purified, tends to be a metal of, of pretty... Uh, pretty intense hardness. And so feet of bronze meant that he walked with purity. In other words, there, there wasn't any impurity in the way in which he walked or lived his life. And then it goes on to talk about he had the voice of many waters. And everyone knows that only God commands water in the Bible. Nobody else commands water. Remember, Jesus calms the sea just by speaking to it, right? We could go on and talk about how he's holding seven stars in one of his hands, and those seven stars correspond to the heavenly churches as much as the seven lampstands correspond to the seven earthly churches. How am I doing so far? And then we could get on to the end of the story where it talks about how he sees Jesus with a big sword coming out of his mouth, and it's a double-edged sword because the Greeks and the Romans were the first people to invent a double-edged sword. Everyone before that only had a single-edged sword, and they invented a double-edged sword. That means that when it goes both ways, it cuts. It's a form of indicating a, a, a judgment that happens by the word or that which is spoken by Jesus. And then he's radiant light, it says at the end of the text, just like Moses when he came off of Sinai. So if you pretty much know most of your Old Testament, and if you pretty much know most of Roman lore and law, Revelation will make complete sense to you. If you don't know those things, Revelation is going to read like a very confusing book that has these images and symbols that make no sense. It's written in a style of literature called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature is written deliberately 
to be coded. Because if John or Jesus in the vision were to tell those churches exactly the upfront meaning of what is written, that would be considered treasonous in the Roman world. But instead, it's written in this kind of symbolically rich, visually rich language so that the communities that read it together and prayed over it and the Holy Spirit was in their midst, they would understand it. But if you were the casual Roman soldier and you picked up a copy of this scroll and read it, it would look like nonsense to you. That's the point. You see the problem 2,000 years later, we pick up the book and it seems like what? Nonsense to us oftentimes because the images are so rich and vivid, it's hard to understand. My favorite scholar on the book of Revelation is a guy named Bruce Metzger. He died a good number of years ago. And what Metzger says is this, is Revelation does not mean what it says. It says what it means. I've always found that to be a rich way to describe that book from the Bible. We'll spend more time in Revelation. But here's all I want us to draw out of this text at the very beginning of this vision that John has. The first thing is that there's seven lampstands, right? And they're on the ground, on the earth. And who is standing in their midst? You can say it louder than that. Jesus is standing in their midst. What a rich image. You can almost visualize a map of Turkey with the location of each of these churches and then there's Jesus standing in their midst. He's not far off. Where is he? Right there with them in their midst. And not only does Jesus stand in their midst, but what is in his hand? What's he holding in his hand in the image? Remember? Seven stars, right? Those seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. They correspond to the heavenly churches. So who are in those churches in heaven, everyone? The saints, be more specific. Those who've been persecuted, the martyrs. So that they're as much a part of the church in a heavenly space as the church on earth is. So we learn not only is Jesus with the church, but the whole church is with Jesus. The one you can see with your eyes right now when I had you look around the room and meet people a few minutes ago. And the heavenly as well all part of our church. We learn something else from this text, that Jesus, according to all these images, he's a pastor, he's a priest, he's a prophet, he's a soldier. The images go on and on and on, right? Describing the very presence of Jesus in our midst. Jesus is with the community and the communities together. Do you begin to see where this is going? Where do we draw strength when we're in this the persecution or suffering? Jesus in the community. Not Jesus with one of us, but Jesus with all of us walking in our midst. He's sitting right there and right there and here and over there and he's sitting even back there. There's no place we go where Jesus is absent. So it's interesting, oftentimes when we pray and we start our prayers with language that sounds like this, Lord, we're so thankful to be gathered here today and we pray that you'll be in our midst. Hard stop. Do you see the error? 
Why do I need to ask him to be present if he already present? So the problem isn't that he's not present. The problem is what? I may not remember he's present. Jesus is always with the church. And so here are some questions for us. And it goes with what I had you do earlier in the worship. Why does companionship matter? And what circumstances usually drive us to community and prayer? As a pastor, I've seen it so many times, folks that don't participate in the life of a church, but they used to, but then their life goes into crisis in some kind or some sort, and they come back. Oftentimes, it's the crisis, the trouble, the difficulties, the persecution that drives us back into community. There's almost something within us that innately knows that when we're in trouble, where do we go? To be with God's people. We just move to it because Jesus is in our midst. So let's talk about how this works in our own life a little bit more. First, we don't stand alone. We don't stand alone. Uh, Jesus tells us in the beatitude that we read that if we've been persecuted or slandered or we've suffered for his namesake, that we're in good company. And the company we're in is not only Jesus himself, but he says, so they persecuted all the prophets who were before you. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, or verse 11? So when we experience that kind of pressure, or that strain, good, we're in good company. The prophets experienced the same thing before us. What I would suggest that we remember here is this, is that Jesus teaches us that he is with the church and that the Holy Spirit is in the church. And one of the struggles we've had as we've come out of this time of pandemic is that we're struggling to figure out what it is to be in the church. You know, last week our live stream didn't work. Half of our church wasn't able to participate in worship. It's about half of the people who live out their faith in the life of this church do so through that, right in your midst. It's almost the equivalent before pandemic, before digital ministry, if we went and stood at the door and we only let every other person in. This is why the technology and the live streaming is so important because it's the way we find community. But to be honest, as church, not this church, every church, we're still trying to figure out how to be a community that's in person and digital. It's hard work to do, but we're going to figure it out together. How can we be that kind of a church when people aren't physically with us in the room? But guess who is with everyone online right now sitting on the couch next to you in your pajamas with your coffee? Jesus is. Just as much as he's sitting here with all of us. We're the community of Jesus together. The second thing I'd say we want to learn from this text is that we draw strength from communion and community together. There's a reason in Methodist churches that we do not put a pulpit here in the middle. What do we put here in the center of our church? We put this at the center of our church. And there's a reason for it. It's not just because we want to look Catholic-y. It's because we believe that, that Jesus, kind of in the bread and the cup, are the center of our attention. 
and that in some ways the guy in front of you in a Hawaiian shirt, he's kind of here for effect. <laughs> the community centers itself on Jesus. Have any of you ever gone to church in a church that's designed church in the round before? Have you ever been to a church like that where it's like semicircular or even circular? It's at the center. There's something to that architecture that's really unique and beautiful about how a church is designed to help us remember visually Jesus is at the center of who we are. See the crossway up there. These symbols, these images, the way we design space is intended to convey something to us, that Jesus is at the very center of who we are, that communion and community are everything. The third thing I would say is this, is that we are not in a popularity contest. Thanks be to God. I am a member of Generation X. I am not a baby boomer. I'm sorry. And in Generation X, that means anyone who is a celebrity, anyone who is famous, and anyone who enjoys prosperity is held in suspicion. We're by nature cynicism and is one of our chief flaws as a generation. We question everything. And actually, at most times, we believe the worst instead of believing the best. It's our great sin. We're not in a popularity contest. So when John Lewis was being beaten in March of 1963, was he in a popularity contest? Not at all. Was B.T. Roberts in a popularity contest? John the Apostle, stranded on the island of Patmos, was he in a popularity contest? The problem we have as American Christians is that we enjoyed for such a period of time a level of influence culturally that we equated being popular with being right. That was true 50 years ago. It has become less true every single year since. We are no longer popular we no longer have cultural capital. We no longer, as a community of religious people, have influence over the public life the way we used to. We are, as the former president of Fuller Theological Seminary, Mark Laberton, would say, in exile. We are a community on the margins. And we haven't been there in a long time, have we? So maybe one of the ways we can help ourselves is by sitting at the feet and learning from people who've been on the margins too. We can learn how to live and be witnesses for Jesus even when we're not the mainstream of the world in which we live. Finally, I would say that we experience persecution as incidental. You know, while pursuing our love, creating, justice-affirming, peacemaking work, we might experience persecution from time to time. This is the beauty of Jesus in that the life he lives is one that results in persecution, does it not? But what I find fascinating about Jesus is this, and perhaps most intriguing to me about the story and the person of Jesus, is that Jesus doesn't come and seek out the cross as much as he knows by seeking out the things of God will take him to the cross. It's a very different way of understanding Jesus. Sometimes we think Jesus is some sort of bizarre fatalist who comes into the world for three years to talk about stuff just so he can get to a cross. 
I would suggest maybe another way of looking at it might be that Jesus came into the world to perfectly embody the love of God in human flesh in every way and that brought him into conflict with every religious and political power of his day. And knowing, knowing that, he embraced that way of life anyways, knowing it would lead to his death and that God would redeem his death and save all of humanity through it. Can I get an amen? amen. The death of Jesus on the cross is not a, just a witness of God's love for us. It's a witness of our vindictiveness against the reign and rule of God. And God takes all of that and turns it into life for every single one of us. It's amazing. So here's something I want you to wonder about. Why is claiming persecution so attractive then? You know, there's people who claim they're persecuted all the time. They like lean into it as much as they can. What makes it so attractive to people? I would say that there's a lot of people who like to claim that they're persecuted and they like making that claim, but they're not actually persecuted. That those are different things. Why persecution at the end of this? The... We're going to talk a lot about this next week. The Beatitudes are not individual statements about how to live life. Jesus is giving you, in his first public speech in Matthew's gospel, the roadmap for his whole ministry. Jesus is born into poverty, is he not? How many times have you heard Jesus say, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? The poverty brings about a sense of mourning, which brings about a sense of gentleness and justice-making, mercy-making. He practices a sense of integrity that leads to his peacemaking, and the peacemaking work results in persecution. And then we go back to the beginning again. The Beatitudes are a roadmap of Jesus' life. They're way-making for him. And friends, they're way-making for us. And so I'm going to encourage you to come online next week, come here next week, as we wrap this series up and talk about how the Beatitudes can be the most life-giving practice for all of us every day. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. We pray not for his presence in our midst. We pray, God, that you would shift and change our hearts so that we might know he is present in our midst. That we would know that we have a friend, a companion, a person that walks with us in every season of our life, good and bad. And so I pray, O oh God, that you would help us as a church and as a community to find our way from time to time, maybe into some good trouble, ways in which we live out your love in the world that may not be popular, but are lived out with integrity, truth, and care, grace, mercy. You embodied all of that, O oh God, in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm.